Good morning, Missio. The reading today is from Luke um, chapter 15, verses 11 through 32. Jesus continued, There is a man who had two sons. The younger one said to his father, Father, give me my share of the estate. So he divided his property between them. Not long after that, the younger son got together all he had, set off for a distant country, and there squandered his wealth in wild living. After he had spent everything, there was a severe famine in that whole country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to a citizen of that country, who sent him to his fields to feed pigs. He longed to fill his stomach with the pods that the pigs were eating, but no one gave him anything. When he came to his senses, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have food to spare, and here I am starving to death. I will set out and go back to my father and say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. So he got up and went to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. He ran to his son, threw his arms around him and kissed him. The son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Quick, bring the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate. For this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. So they began to celebrate. Meanwhile, the older son was in the field. When he came near the house, he heard music and dancing. So he called one of the servants and asked him what was going on. Your brother has come, he replied, and your father has killed the fattened calf because he has him back safe and sound. The older brother became angry and refused to go in. So his father went out and pleaded with him. But he answered his father, look, all these years I've been slaving for you and never disobeyed your orders. Yet you never gave me even a young goat so I could celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours who has squandered your property with prostitutes comes home, you kill the fattened calf for him. My son, the father said, you are always with me and everything I have is yours. But we had to celebrate and be glad because this brother of yours was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. Thanks, Ria. We are, um, over the last few months, we've been talking about the gospel and what the gospel is. Um, and if you break down the word gospel, um, it breaks down into good story. That's how the word breaks down. Welcome, you two. So glad to have you beside me. Um, so we've been talking about the gospel, and we get the word evangelism, evangelion, from that same kind of etymology of um, good news story. So when we're talking about the gospel, we're talking about God's good news story. And sometimes we've been speaking about how there's different understandings of what that could be, or sometimes we're a bit, when we hear the word gospel, it just feels so big. And so during the summer, we went through the book of Galatians in order to answer the question for ourselves, like, what is the gospel? What does Galatians tell us? What is this letter telling us about God's good news story? 
And there's a lot that we found out from Galatians. I won't try and summarize it. Um, you all remember it perfectly, right? And then we wanted to continue on with talking about what the gospel is. And we are now looking at the story of the prodigal. We wanted to look at the story of the prodigal because it's the way that Jesus tells this story. Jesus illustrates the good news story by communicating in a story the one that Rhea just read to us. That's God's good news story. And the question last week as Johnny opened us up to the parable, he asked us to ask ourselves this question, does our story sound like Jesus's? There's a story that we tell ourselves about God's good news story. Does it sound like Jesus' story? Does it, is it the kind of story that we tell each other on a Sunday morning? Is it the story that we tell others when we're out at work or when we're with our neighbours? Does the story that we tell, God's good news story, sound like Jesus's? And it's through the story that we're invited to ask questions. In Galatians, the story invited us to ask ourselves about if we know our own sense of belonging or our own sense of lovedness. And the prodigal story is asking us questions about do we know what it means to be home and what it feels like to be home. Um, And so today, Johnny had the idea of inviting um, folks from the community to come up and tell their stories. Um, How and to kind of illustrate how God's story, the one we've been talking about, intersects with their story. And so, thankfully, um, Kerry and Jordan both said they would be willing to share their stories with us today. So they've spent time writing them, and they're going to read them to us. Um, And what I'd like you to do as you listen to their stories is think about how their stories become an invitation for yours. What kinds of questions is their story, similar to Galatians, similar to the prodigal, what kinds of questions is their story invite of yours? What can you attend to? What can you attune to? And so as they're here with me, I'd love to maybe you both to just introduce yourself, say a little something, and then um, we'll give them the mic and they can tell us what they want to tell us this morning. Good morning. Can you hear me? Okay. My name is Carrie, as Heather said, and um, I'm just so grateful for the opportunity because I haven't been going here very long, um, just throughout this year. So, yeah, I've never done anything like this before, so it's pretty exciting. Mm -hmm. Thanks for being here. Mm -hmm. Do you want to tell us who you are? Hi, I'm uh, I'm Jordan. Um, (laughs) I'm also newer than you. I recently moved to Utah a couple months ago, me and my wife. So, uh, yes, thank you. Excited to be here. You guys have a great state, so, Um, yeah. (laughs) Um, Grateful and honored to be able to tell a little bit of my story today. Yeah, thanks, Jordan. Do you mind if I just pray for us before we begin? Go for it. Let's pray. Jesus, thanks that you do tell us this story about a father who runs after us and loves us and wants us home, that the book of Galatians, the letter from Paul, invites us to deeply understand that we are loved and that we belong and that we're welcome at the table. And I thank you for Johnny's conversations with Kerry and Jordan and him hearing that story reflected in the letter and in the story and now in theirs. And so as we listen to them, would you invite us to our own sense of lovedness, to our own sense of belonging and invitation to participate with you in your good story. So Spirit, would you um, yeah, just use this morning and use these stories to invite us to you. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. 
Thank you. Uh, well, my story is a little bit more like the older brother um, in The Prodigal Son. So just to give you a sneak preview. Um, <laughs> so that's more of the direction that I'll be coming from today. <clears throat> uh, for the majority of my Christian life, my faith has been centered on defaulting to judgment instead of defaulting to love. My understanding of the gospel was a narrow-sighted mission to control my and others' behavior without really being curious about what was going on in their hearts and lives. I sincerely believed that Christians were meant to be like the hall monitors of the world, calling out bad behavior as a way of making everything more godly. I was raised in a loving home with a family that knows Jesus, and what was modeled to me was a binary worldview where there are people who are for God and people who are against God, and not really people in between who are in process or people who are, whose faiths are genuine, but simply didn't look like ours. Subconsciously, I believe that God, the people God loved best and shown favor on were the people who followed the rules most closely and had the best outer show of living out their devotion to God. I saw others and myself as projects to be fixed and managed instead of people to be loved, with whom I would encounter life's big questions and pains. As many of my childhood, high school, and college friends could tell you, I cared so much more about being right and correct than being loving, approachable, and a soft place to land for someone at any season of their life. My faith was not an invitation to kindness or compassion. Not that I would tell you that at the time. My faith was a score system where someone was either winning or losing in the eyes of God, and by extension, my eyes too. Based on the faith influences in my life, I believed the spiritual authority given to Christians was to condemn and call out instead of to heal and restore. I was so driven by my passion for rightness and my idea of justice that I actually became interested in politics at a really young age. I became like an unofficial underage evangelist at my high school for certain controversial state initiatives. Not that any of us could even vote yet. <laughs> I was known as the angsty Christian girl at my high school and I carried that energy with me to my conservative Christian university where there were others like me who fanned the flames of that rigid mentality. Looking back on it now, it was an exhausting, alienating way to live. Keeping score of those around me, criticizing the way people lived and loved and existed, I was once messaged by somebody uh, who told me that if all Christians were like me, they'd never step foot in a church again. Yeah, I was an expert at isolating myself, but also wondering why I felt so alone. <clears throat> I read the verses that described how living for God is not easy and involves being persecuted. So through that lens, I thought I was doing the right thing by trying to manage others' behavior. My worldview led me to idolize religiosity and rightness instead of constantly looking to the one who levels the playing fields and erases the score. In truth, religion keeps the score, but Jesus does not. Over time, Jesus has opened my eyes and softened my heart to the scandalous nature of his love. And it seems to break all the rules that I have kept so closely track of. 
In the last eight years, through college work experiences and becoming open to more of the world after graduation, I've met people from all beliefs, political affiliations, and walks of life who modeled true love for me and showed me what it looks like to love with no agenda. These people would go out of their way for others in ways I never really thought to and had so much more patience and curiosity than I did. For one example, I had a work opportunity at a radio station that, unbeknownst to me, had a bunch of weekly radio shows featuring people with completely opposing viewpoints as my own. They had no idea who I was or what I believed, but I became friends with these people by seeing them so often. They were no longer two-dimensional projects to be converted. They became three-dimensional to me. They were kind and asked me good questions and made me truly think and re-examine myself. Even though I was so afraid that my angstiness would be exposed at any moment. But it never was. It was just a wholly humbling experience. Time and time again, opportunities like this arose. Humanizing the same kinds of people I was committed to correcting. How could it be that I had so much to learn from people whose lives weren't as churchy? I started to read and study the Bible for real, coming to terms with it not as a rule book, but as a love letter to humans who will never get it perfectly right, but are still endlessly pursued by their creator. My narrow worldview couldn't handle seeing and experiencing how spacious God's love truly is. Rules felt comfortable, and love can feel scary, but I realized that Jesus was never afraid of fully showing up and loving the people he, quote-unquote, wasn't supposed to. I committed to reconciling my default to judgment with comprehending how Jesus treated the non-churchy people, and it transformed my beliefs. Love has changed both my mind and my heart. I started to understand how love is more magnetizing and transformative than shame and judgment ever could be. And I began to embrace the messiness of what it means to love your neighbor and yourself without gatekeeping Christianity. My heart transformation continued when I moved here to Salt Lake City six years ago. And I had the opportunity to continue to learn from people outside of my worldview. I became so much more comfortable with the idea that I could fully abide in Jesus while also being completely open to listening and learning from people so different from myself. I didn't want to be known for my anger. I wanted to be known for my love. And love does not necessitate agreement in all things. Loving my new friends, coworkers, and new connections in a non-calculating and non-scorekeeping way feels more right and godly than the rule-keeping ever did. How people live their lives and what they do becomes less important to me than how I can fully show up for them and love them more completely. I didn't have to subconsciously maintain the rules-keeping mindset that was modeled to me after what I knew as safe, comfortable, and dualistic. It took getting out of my own way to recognize all the unique and personal ways that Jesus speaks into people's lives and trusting him and that his love is so much more powerful and influential than my judgmental and scorekeeping self ever could be. I've come to know that being quick to judge people, managing others' behavior, and hurting people, including myself, in Jesus' name, none of that is actually what I'm invited to do as his beloved.
By loving other people for real, for who they are, and not assigning them a score, I recognize how much we simply cannot earn God's love. Certainly not by being more right. I will always be in process at all times, and I will also always be completely loved. Now I know what Jesus wants for me is simple, but it's not necessarily easy. He wants me to look to him, not religion, and default to love for myself and others. He loves the stone throwers just as much as the woman caught in adultery. He loves the prodigal son just as much as he loves the older rule-following brother. He wants me to be a vessel of his love and his light in the world more than he wants anything else from me. I'm anchored in the belief that Jesus' immeasurable love cannot be diminished or tripped up regardless of if I follow the rules perfectly or not. He deeply loved my judgmental, combative teen and young adult self just as much as he loves me now. And his love is what transformed my mind and my life. Defaulting to love instead of judgment is a new kind of holy challenge for me, and I am now committed to being a soft place to land for myself and those around me. No score required. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks so much, Kerry. When I read her story before, the question that it evoked in me was, and for all of us, I think, there may be other questions or parts of a story that stood out to you, but the question that comes to my mind is where in our own lives or stories does love need to break in? So I just want you to sit with that for a minute. We've been hearing this story, as she said, of the scandalous love of God. And so I just want you to think for a second where you need the scandalous love of God to break in. Maybe just hold that with you as we move to hearing from Jordan and his story. Thanks, Jordan. Good morning again. Um, I really resonated with your story. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, it's so good. Um, it's a little bit about me. Um, I grew up in the Pentecostal church, if anybody knows what that is. Um, it's kind of rooted in uh, the holiness movement. Um, and so my religious upbringing was kind of, um, it emphasized like personal goodness. Um, the way J- Jesus and scripture were presented uh, was like him as savior and scripture as like a guide for like moral goodness. Um, I'm inc- incredibly grateful for that legacy. Um, you know, something my mom was raised in and something I was raised in, and so uh, it definitely was the foundation of my faith. Um, but as I got older, going to college and um, kind of seeing a little bit more of the world, uh, just kind of understanding that um, questions started to be raised that my faith couldn't answer, mm-hmm. um, or at least the faith I inherited couldn't answer. Um, I remember I would be in class and a, a question would come up and I would get kind of like that, uh, that gut feeling like, Ugh. Like, uh, I don't know how to answer this. Um, no, no one was asking me directly, but it just in my mind, I was like, this, is, uh, this makes me a little anxious. Um, 
and kind of through that experience, I just realized that the world we live in is filled with multiple sources of authority. Um, what I think is right, um, or what I, what I grew up to what was right was different from what other people believe was right. Um, and so with all these endless options, you know, you start to question, you start to ask questions that, um, that, uh, um, that need answering or it needs some type of explanation. Um, so eight or so years ago, my community at the time began introducing me to some of the church's ancient spiritual practices like Sabbath um, and uh, silence and solitude. Uh, through this, I began a journey of understanding kind of the landscape of my life. So starting to look at my family history, like who am I, who, who are my parents, um, uh, you know, what, who, you know, identity, vocation, kind of those, those questions I started asking myself, um, just a lot of learning, which I think is a humbling experience. Um, just to kind of look at your past, look at your parents' past, it, it's always humbling. Um, and um, one of the things I learned about myself was uh, just that I kind of question things and that's okay. Um, I was that kid in high school who, when everybody was getting an iPad, I had, iPod, I had a Zoom. If anybody knows what that is, uh, let's go. Um, I was like an evangelist for Zoom, so. Um, <laughs> Back in the day, it was revolutionary, it still is. Um, but that was kind of my identity. I would always kind of question and like, you know, why is everybody getting an iPod and I want to Zoom? Um, and that kind of, that was a part of my identity and those questions kind of moved from kind of more trivial things like that to um, just more of like the cultural narratives that we all inherit. Mm -hmm. um, on this journey of trying to understand myself, I began to realize that um, I'm not a blank slate. Um, as with a family who raised me, whose influence I see every day, I also had a social and cultural upbringing. I'm not self-created. The way I think about the world is inherited just like my DNA. Um, as I kept peeling back the layers, I also realized even the social narratives that shaped my world were rooted in the past. Um, I had a uh, mentor tell me that there's roots to everything. Um, no belief system, no idea in the world is uh, kind of original in itself. There's usually a root to where it came from. And so I just started to kind of peel back those layers and understand, um, you know, uh, the things that culture were telling me, where did those things come from? Um, and so um, just kind of understanding the, the heritage of Western culture and the ways in which, uh, you know, how America was formed, who we are as a people group. Um, just wanted to kind of understand the stories that animated uh, what that looked like, but also understand if those actually were in alignment with who Jesus was and the story that scripture was telling. Um, so I kind of came to the realization that one, um, that's kind of like being, a, I'm not a blank slate, but I'm also, there's a certain, uh, I like the phrase, my mind was kind of colonized by the culture. And so it's like, how do I uncolonize it? Um, how do I actually become, uh, how do I kind of come to the, the base of myself and understanding of who I am and the world and scripture and Jesus so that I can uh, begin to build a foundation that looks more like Jesus in the world. Mm. Um, yeah, so, um, so the spirit began the work. Um, and I think that's super important too, just the idea that this wasn't um, something that uh, I just did on my own. I think it was a spirit along with relationship, mentors, people who were moving me in this direction. Um, it really was a relationship that begin to kind of open me up to some of these deeper questions. Um, uh, kind of the, one of my favorite scriptures growing up was Romans 12 and 2, you know, Romans 12 2, yeah, be not conformed to the pattern of this world, but you know, let your mind be renewed. This idea that like we're constantly trying to better understand who we are as people and under, understand the world we live in and understand Jesus. Um, through reintroducing myself to Jesus of the gospels, 
um, who was steeped in the Torah, lived a very ordinary life for 30 years in a neighborhood, helped me put flesh back on my savior. The incarnation became liberating. I started to learn the grand narrative that scripture was telling from Genesis to Revelation. I wasn't just following a religion that made me a good person, um, but uh, I love this quote by uh, Kristen Didi Johnson. Um, she beautifully says, I'm participating in extending shalom to all parts of creation. So I shifted my posture from uh, who was right to what version of life is most compelling. Uh, this question um, predicates the tension that life is made of. Why is Jesus so uncompelling? Uh, the question I kind of asked myself, kind of after rebuilding. Um, because his life, death, resurrection, and ascension point to a reality that speak to the deepest longings of the human heart. Um, but what do I do with this kind of rediscovered understanding of freedom? Um, freedom for what purpose? Um, so I think so many times people kind of like self-actualize, quote unquote, and then it's like, okay, I'm, um, I've, uh, I've discovered all these things, but what does it actually mean? Um, what does it actually mean for my life? And um, so a few years ago, I hit a wall um, when life required me to make a career shift that undid a future I saw for myself. Um, but when that dream was allowed to end, resurrection happened that moved my career emphasis from ambition to vocation and kind of really understanding what that means to be called to something. Um, I'm now called to something not of my own creation, but one rooted in other-centered love. The journey inward was the journey inward has led me outward. Every aspect of my life is not about my life. There's no willed direction, um, but as uh, Ronald Rollheiser says, um, I'm standing where I'm supposed to be standing. It's the idea that um, calling isn't kind of like this thing I'm searching out for, but just understanding the place that God has placed me in. Um, and stewarding that beautifully, um, being content with where I'm at. Um, so this now looks like understanding the cries of the city so I can participate with God in revealing his rule and reign. I now know myself in a way so that I can be a catalyst for community and belonging. People are looking for tables to sit at and families to belong to. Uh, the work I do, um, so I work in community development, um, has led me to understand the implications of housing injustice and presented me with a unique way to participate in its redemption. So the questions are still there, but now Jesus is present with me in them. And instead of accumulation and control, life looks like yielding an invitation. So the question I think that is so liberating is not, what can I get out of life, but what is life asking of me? Thanks. Thanks, Jordan. Just this picture of an invitation that as we understand more deeply God's love, there's an invitation to participation. Um, this sense of purpose that comes out of belonging to God and listening to God's story and how God's story asks us to partner with God in loving. And like Jordan said, what does it look like to build community justice? And I think that question is asked of all of us. We will participate so uniquely and so differently and so this the question that came out of having read Jordan's story was what is God inviting us to uh, to participate in so I just want you to sit with that question too and it does you don't have to hear anything it doesn't have to be like a magical moment it's just a question so I just ask you to sit with that question do you have a sense of what God is inviting you to participate in and it's okay if the answer is no or maybe or I'd like to know or maybe you have a really clear sense 
But just sit with that question for a minute. What is God inviting you to participate in and with? Every week we come to this table. Um, It's a table that represents Jesus' body broken and blood um, spilled out. It's a a picture of love. That God um, so desperately loves us and wants us to be near. That God would do everything possible to fold us in, to welcome us, to, like you said, gather us around this table. And so we finish with this every single week. Because it's a practice that we do that helps us to embody what we believe. That we believe that we're welcomed to this table. We're welcomed into the presence of God. That we're wanted. And that we gather together and it's a picture of all of us from different walks of life, different places, different countries. And we come here and and we become one family. And so I just want you to know that today, as you think about... um, the love of God that is offered to you is so clearly and beautifully described by Kerry. The love of God is given freely, scandalously to all of us. And we just say yes to it. And in saying yes to it, we're invited to participate in God's story. God's story that is full of goodness and good of graciousness and means that we're active and embodying the love that is given to us. And so as you come to this table, come with those questions, come with a friend, come alone, um, and just pray, be in the presence of God as we continue to lean into what is true and as his spirit confirms to us what is true. So let me pray, and then you're invited to this table as we sing. Jesus, thank you so much for Kerry and Jordan, and I think everybody sitting in here could come and sit up here and tell us and speak out something. And maybe it would be doubt, maybe it would be uncertainty, maybe it would be hope, and yet you meet us all in the places of where we live. And your love reaches us where we are. And so I pray today for everyone in here that there would be a sense of that love, that there would be a confirmation of that sense of belonging. And that, Holy Spirit, you would show where your story is intersecting with ours and where you are active in our lives. And that we, like Jordan said, we would give in to yielding to your invitation to us. We pray that in Jesus' name. Amen.